Welcome to Growth Colony, Australia's B2B podcast. I'm Alex from Xgrowth. Each episode, we bring you B2B founders, CMOs, marketing and sales leaders to find out what makes them successful and what was behind their failures, or as we like to call them, hard-learned lessons. If you enjoy the episode, please consider giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and share the pod with a friend you think could get value out of it. And of course, make sure to join the community Slack channel at growthcolony.org forward slash Slack. That's enough from me though, let's dive right in. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode. I'm Shane Hoda with Xgrowth and today I'm talking to Nikki Shirley, Head of Marketing at Curious about creating thought leadership that stands out and how she's done exactly that in her role at Curious. On that note, let's dive in. Nikki, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolute pleasure. I'm su- super excited. I, you know, I think I think this whole concept of th- thought leadership is something that a lot of people talk about, and it's it's one of those one of those buzzwords that gets thrown around quite a lot, right? Yeah, it does. And yeah, and there's just so many different different definitions for it. It's like you know, it gets mixed with personal brand and may- get mixed with just any random kind of content that companies produce gets mixed with SEO. How do you, let's, let's explore this. How do you define thought leadership in, in your, in Curious, in your organization? Uh, Yeah, that's, it's an interesting question because I agree. I think it probably varies a bit from, from one organization to another. And I'm sure if you talk to any marketer in the B2B space, they'll be doing some form of thought leadership. I guess for us at Curious, uh, we work with clients on some fairly new technologies. So we're talking about data, cloud, IoT, AI, that sort of thing. We're doing some really innovative and transformative work for our clients. And to do that successfully for them, they, they have to really trust us. Some of the stuff is very cutting edge. So they need to know that we have the expertise and the experience and the credibility to ensure that we're going to deliver a positive outcome for them. So I guess thought leadership for us is about positioning Curious as the trusted expert. And so that can come in many forms. It could be it could be a, a blog where we're sharing some insights on something. It could be an ebook, it could be a report, or it could also be a presentation at a at a conference or or a webinar or a podcast. But I guess the point is it's it's not just content for the sake of content. It is about creating thought leadership in a way that positions Curious as the trusted expert. Got it. Got it. And so, so that 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 sounds great. And I think there's uh, there's a lot to take away from there, and there's a lot to unpack there. But I I really love to hear what do you think is a piece of thought leadership content that stand out? Like what what. What criteria, what qualities does it need to have in order to stand out? Yeah, in, in my view, thought leadership content that will have the most impact and, and will stand out from the crowd will be content that's authentic. So what I mean by that is something that provides real insight or real value to the reader, not just some sort of product promotion that's thinly veiled as thought leadership content. I think audiences are, are, you know, being inundated with content at the moment with, with through digital marketing. So it needs to be something that feels real to be to be actually useful for them. 
And, and in that example, that's where, you know, a report or a survey or a report, something that's unique, something that's different, that you're not just writing about, about your type of product or service, that you're uncovering unique insights that you can share with your audience, something that's, that's really valued for them. And on that token, because I think audiences are being so inundated with content, I think we need to be really mindful of, of catering to our audience's cluttered digital lives. So people like to consume thought leadership in a huge variety of ways. Some like to read, some like to listen. Some want long, in-depth content, and some people just want the bullet points. So I think probably much the same as people listening to this podcast, there, there will be people that will listen to the whole thing and people that just want the highlights. And as marketers, I think it's important that we create content that caters to both audiences. So for example, if you're doing something that's really in depth and long form, do that, create that content for audiences that are deeply interested and have time to read it and really dive into it. But then you can do what I kind of call sweat the content. So you also create assets such as PR articles or blogs or infographics based on that core piece of content. And that's smaller kind of digestible pieces of content, things that people, it will at least pique their interest and build brand awareness for the people that are time for. Mm. I think you touched on a couple of really important points there, right? And the, some of the key components that I want to I dig a little bit deeper and I want to get a little bit more practical about it, okay? Because that makes sense from a from a theory perspective and, and makes plenty of sense in fact. And I want to dig a little bit deeper into a report that you at Curious and, and the team at Curious have recently put together, which is a which is an amazing thought leadership piece. But tell us a little bit about that and what, what this report is. Sure. So at Curious we recently released the very first state of AI report in New Zealand. So the idea of this report was to gain insights into the opportunities that AI offers for businesses, as well as, a, as its impact on our society and economy. And what we really wanted to do was identify the latest AI strategies and trends, and also to establish a benchmark for New Zealand's AI maturity. Because the thing is, is not a lot of these types of studies designed solely for the New Zealand market. There are global reports, but they are predominantly based on the US market. Sometimes we get APAC reports, but because New Zealand represents such a small relative population size of that group, there's really not a lot out there that's specifically catering for us. So that's why we wanted to do this report, so we could have something for New Zealand businesses to look at and give them really unique insight into what's going on in the AI space in New Zealand. And, and the results of that report have been really interesting, and it's clearly shown that we are lagging behind our global, global counterparts, and Kiwi businesses urgently need to put together a game plan when it comes to benefiting from AI. So, so that's the, the report in a nutshell, and, and that's kind of what we aim to put together and what we aim to create as a piece of thought leadership content that's, that's unique and authentic and hopefully of real value to, to our audience. I love that. I love that. Yeah. And I think, you know, it, it's like in a lot of situations you could turn and say, hey, what is the question that a lot of people want, want answered? And it takes a fair bit of effort to put it together. And there's a bit of work. 
But what is that question? And it's a great starting point. And just like you said, I think that the state of AI in, in New Zealand is is a question that is probably not answered. And and again, as you as you mentioned, it's something that it's covered in APAC or it's covered maybe, maybe if we're lucky, ANZ, but not specifically for New Zealand. So can you tell us a little bit about where did you start when it came to putting this report together? Yeah, so it kind of it started a while ago. I guess internally we have some incredible talent and curious in, in this AI space. And we were originally talking with our head of AI and data science about what sort of products and services they were going to create. And, and we were talking about maybe doing some marketing experience uh, experiments to see what type of things might resonate with our audience. And then we kind of thought, well, what if we just asked them? What if we asked them what they were interested in? And then we thought, well, what if we take that further? What if we actually do a survey and we ask these questions that, that we're interested in but also kind of that they're, that they're interested in as well and create a report out of that because there could be something really amazing that comes out of that, some really unique insights. So, so that's, kind of, that's kind of where the discussion started at the beginning between the marketing team and our, and our AI and data science team. But I guess, first of all, we really wanted to start by defining our objectives for the report because... This, these types of reports are not for the faint-hearted. They, they require a lot of time and energy and resource, resources, and we wanted to make sure that we were, you know, we were truly getting what we wanted out of it. So we had three objectives for the report. So first of all was that we personally wanted to learn more about, for ourselves, about what people and businesses in New Zealand are thinking about AI so that we could apply that within our business. We wanted to, secondly, position Curious as a thought leader in the AI space. So Curious is typically known as data specialists. So we felt like this could be a really great way by creating this, this report to signal, I guess, our evolution into the AI space. And then our third objective was to generate leads so that our sales team could start having conversations about AI, either with our existing customers that we're already perhaps doing data projects for or, or with new customers. So setting up those objectives so that we were really clear right at the outset what we were trying to achieve. Once we had that, that's only when we got started. So that's the point at when we engaged with a research partner and when we started designing the survey and thinking about what our customers would want to understand about AI. And so how could we construct the survey to answer those pressing questions? Right. Okay. Okay. So being being very clear on the objectives that you're trying to achieve with the, um, with the thought leadership piece came first. And from there, you start working with, with, a, with another partner how did you go about compiling all this data? So once we did the survey with our research partner, they then take all of that data and analyze the results. And they presented us with an incredibly comprehensive report with the findings of the survey. We really dug deep into that with them and, and 
really got some some really key insights. So from there, we were then able to pick out the key things that we could see that were coming through the results of the survey so that we could then weave it into a compelling story. Because I guess with these things, there's there's lots of data, there's lots of research points, and you can kind of throw them all together. But but the key is really trying to make some sense of it, and and pull it together in a way that's going to be that's going to make sense for the for the reader. That's going to have some clear categories or key themes. Once we had that kind of that narrative and those key those key themes determined, we then engaged with a copywriter that they then picked up the sort of the raw results of that and wrote the report. And so then they picked out the highlights and showed the results to each of the questions. From that point, once we had the copy written and agreed with all the stakeholders, then we worked with a designer to visually bring it to life. And there's actually quite an art to that. As you can imagine, research and statistics can sometimes be quite dry. So we worked really hard with our designer to make the infographics really visually interesting and put the report together in a way that that was quite compelling. Because I think it's important with a thought leadership piece like this that it feels digestible because it can be quite a meaty piece of content, quite solid, quite comprehensive, but it's got to feel approachable and digestible that you want people to actually read it and not just use it, put themselves to sleep. Yes, I, uh, I, I totally understand. And it doesn't turn into one of those reports that live on your, uh, on your desktop and just sits there for months and months before, uh, before it, you either archive it somewhere or, 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 um, or throw it in the, in the, the, the trash. Yeah, I agree. You know, you always have this idea that you're, that you're going to have all this time time to read it, but you never quite get there. And that's why you've got to make sure it does feel really approachable. Yeah, exactly. Good luck with uh, Good luck with that. Now, Nikki, I want to go back to the survey that you mentioned. Um, would you be able to give us a little bit of an insight and a little bit more detail about the survey? So, you know, how many questions were you asking? How many people did uh, did you reach out? You know, can you give us a little bit, a little bit more information on that? Sure. So, as well as the report itself being approachable and digestible, we had to make the survey approachable. Otherwise, people just won't do it. Right. Yeah, that's a big issue. It's a big issue. So so people are fairly apathetic when it comes to completing surveys. So we really worked very hard at the beginning to make sure we were asking all the questions that we wanted, but without making it too big and too many and too long. So our aim was to ensure that the survey took between five and ten minutes to complete and absolutely no longer than 10 minutes. So I think we had maybe between 20 and 25 questions, but some of them were quite quick and easy, Mm. quick and easy to ask. But the key was, I think, making the survey under 10 minutes so that it felt quite easy for people to, to complete. What we also did, and this is to do with some clever technology with our research partner, is we still managed to capture the survey question results even if people dropped off halfway through. So say they think, oh, yeah, I've got five minutes between this meeting. I'll, I'll, 
Hopana answer these questions. And maybe they only get through half of the questions before someone comes and interrupts them or they've got to run off to another meeting. What we made sure was that we were still able to capture those 10 questions, even if they didn't complete the, the second half of the survey. And so that was really important because you've just got to be practical that people just aren't necessarily, you know, going to get to the end. So that's the way we looked at it. We constructed some of the questions were um, asking them like about what their role is or what their industry was so that we could create a view of our respondents to say, okay, well, the respondents were these type of people from these type of industries, this type of, you know, this type of thing. So, so some of them were questions around that. And then we kind of grouped the questions into some key areas. So uh, we had questions around things like what type of technology they're using and, and things around that. We had questions around privacy and ethics relating to data and AI. Then we had a whole bunch of questions about uh, what, what do they think the benefits of AI are. So we, had, we kind of had these groupings. But what was also key to this report was that, as I mentioned, we really wanted to be able to plot people on a scale of where their maturity was. So we had some really key questions in there that would allow us to, to create that AI maturity scale and then see where the respondents in New Zealand are sitting on that scale. Got it. Got it. Very interesting. Very interesting. And I think that's really important. The point that you mentioned about keeping the survey short and, uh, and and not asking for a lot of time. I know some, I've been in surveys that they're like, yeah, let's just do some questions here. And then before I know it, they, uh, you know, and I ask, what is usually the time commitment? And somebody says, oh, it takes about 30 minutes. And I'm like, yeah, no, nah, that's not happening. No, you've got to make it so that they can do it in a break or between meetings, or you've got to make it feel approachable. That's right. That's right. And so that they're not looking for the abort button. Okay, so you 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 and the team compiled the, the the report, put it all together, got the copywriter, got the designer. What happened with the promotion? How did you approach the promotion of of the piece? Yeah, so we've created uh, the report and then a number of assets to support the report, and then we're promoting it via a number of channels. So. It's still early days, but but what we've kind of put together, I guess, is a bit of an integrated promotional campaign. So we have the report PDF itself, which I think is about uh, 30 pages, and you, that can be downloaded via a landing page on our website. Then we've also created a small blog series that kind of summarizes some of the key insights and delves into a couple of different areas within the report. We also uh, worked really hard with our PR agency to create a bit of a news angle because there were actually some really interesting insights, particularly that New Zealand is lagging behind our global counterparts. So we um, worked with our PR agency to create some PR articles and a bit of a PR program with key journalists in, in New Zealand. We also worked with our advertising and media agencies to put together a digital advertising campaign that's kind of only just recently launched but that consisted of some digital banner ads social media and google adwords we've also done some organic social media ourselves we've done we're going to be doing an email lead nurture series and then 
we have done some internal promotion with our own sales teams and our own pa- our partner sales teams because obviously it's one thing to use thought leadership content from a marketing perspective, but there are also salespeople that can use that content in their conversations with their customers or with new prospects. So if they know that there's something in particular in that report that might relate to that customer or industry, they're able to share the report with them and have a conversation with them. So, yeah, it's really about creating a promotional program that's kind of hitting things from from all sorts of angles. And it's as I said, it's early days, but we're already starting to see the results. So we've had a few hundred downloads of the report already which maybe in Australia that might seem small, but in New Zealand, no, that's in Australia, quite, that's quite a large also, number. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I want to say that even in Australia, that is a that is a very good uh, very good number and very target, a very great target to have. So awesome work on that front. Yeah, yeah. And then um, despite having to compete with COVID in the media, we've had some solid media response. So we've had a few good news articles and a couple of um, great radio interviews as well. We've seen a huge increase in traffic to our website, as well as a lot of views of our AI services web pages. So from a brand awareness and positioning perspective, which you'll recall is one of our objectives, it's really delivering for us. And now we're going to start digging into the MQLs or the marketing qualified leads and work closely with our sales team to see where we can take this from a revenue generation point of view. Mm. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And I think it's really important. I love the elaborate energy that you and the team have put behind the report for promotion, because I feel like a lot of marketers who create these amazing pieces of content and tick all the boxes and not think about the promotion piece. And, you know, it it obviously is not the case here where you have PR and advertising, organic, and all these bits and pieces that are supporting to push this report out into uh, into the market absolutely i mean it's quite an undertaking like i said it's not yeah, it's not faint-hearted. it's taken a lot of time a lot of energy it's been incredibly involved so we absolutely don't want to just create this amazing report and then you know have it sit on the content section of our website we wanted to get it out there we wanted to get it in people's hands we wanted to make sure that we were doing the absolute best with it that we could. The other thing too is, it you know, it doesn't have a lifetime forever because it's a survey, it's a snapshot in time, right? So mm. there is a certain time-bound window that it will be useful for. Like it's not going to be useful for years and years and years. It will have, you know, a six to 12-month shelf life. Of course, of course. Nikki, if somebody's turned to you and be like, look, that sounds awesome. And I would want to create a state of fill in the blank, right? In fill in the blank geography. But Nikki, I want to know, like, you know, how much effort and time should I allocate for this? Like, you know, what what should be the, um, you know, what is the realistic expectation that I need to set internally that, hey, if we're going to start this, this is the amount of effort it's going to take. This is the amount, of, the amount of time that it's going to take. What what would you say to them? Yeah, um, yeah, definitely put aside some budget and put aside some time. So I guess for us, it probably took six months from conception to launch. And 
that and in that time there was a lot of involvement I mean there were times where we could kind of while it was maybe off with the copywriter or with the research panel with the designers where we it was in their hands and you know we could we could work on some other things but it has take it you have to be very hands-on with it it does require a lot of effort and it is significant but yeah, six months is incredibly obviously, yeah. worthwhile yeah six <laughs> yeah. months is, is, a, is a good like a duration it's a good on it's it's beyond a the quarterly measurement that a lot of businesses look at so Mm. that's really good to know really good to know um the last thing that i want to ask nikki is what are some of the mistakes that you made along the way that if you go back and and you know you want to prepare another report similar to this or another piece of um thought leadership similar to this you're going to change the way you do something or avoid doing something what what comes to mind Yeah, that's an interesting one. I'd say this is probably less of a mistake and maybe more of a gotcha. But constructing the survey and the questions that you want to ask right at the beginning is an absolutely crucial exercise. And there's two reasons for that. One is that you only get one opportunity to ask the questions that you need. So we actually had a situation where one of the results came through really differently to how we'd imagined. And if we'd known, we would have asked a follow-on question to gain deeper insight. But you don't have that opportunity, you know, once the survey is out there, it's done. So the tricky thing is that you almost need to have an idea on what your narrative is right from the outset. And I don't mean in a way, you know, that you're predetermining the outcome, but more in a way that ensures your questions will cover everything you need. Because once you hit go, that's it. Mm. And secondly, this hopefully won't be a one-off exercise. You'll want to do the survey each year or, or maybe every second year because by doing that, it allows you to show trends or a shift over time. So you could probably change out a couple of questions each time you do it, but mostly you'll want to keep the questions exactly the same so that you can start making year-on-year comparisons and showing trends over time. So getting those questions constructed correctly right up front is is a really crucial exercise and you need to be incredibly detailed to to get that right and work with a lot of stakeholders. We really worked with our AI and data science team to make sure that we were covering covering all the angles and, and getting it right. Another tip that I'd add, and and we've sort of touched on this earlier, is that it's actually quite hard to get a really solid number of survey responses. You know, we talked about people aren't necessarily that keen or have the time to to take surveys. So it takes quite a bit of effort up front to get that survey in front of your target audience and to convince them to respond. So To address this, we actually partnered with a couple of key organisations right up front to ensure that we had access to a wide uh, reach of potential respondents. So we partnered with our parent company, Spark. We partnered with a government agency, the Ministry of Business Innovation and Employment, and we also partnered with the AI Forum. So by having them on board, it meant that they were also able to support us by sending out the survey to their databases, promoting it on their social media feeds, that type of thing. And that 
additional activity really helped us to ensure that we had a solid survey response rate. Very interesting. Very interesting. I think that's um, that's a really solid point because you you have to get get that statistically significant number of response responses to be able to uh, put that report together. Um, no, that's a that's a great great point that you raise. Yeah, absolutely. You need that solid response rate to give the report the credibility that it deserves. If it's only a handful of respondents, you, yeah, like you say, it's not necessarily statistically significant. And you want to make sure you're getting a wide variety of the right type of respondents as well because if you're only getting one type, one type of business maybe or one type of industry, then that can really skew the results. So getting that wide reach was really critical. Got it. Got it. Nikki, this has been this has been amazing and I think and I think there's you've dropped so many golden nuggets about um, thought leadership and and also looking at a practical perspective, uh, looking from a practical perspective with regards to the report that you yourself have put together has been has been great. Now, before we kind of move on, I want to ask you a couple of rapid fire questions at the at the end. Before kind of we get to the rapid fire questions, is there anything that, you know, you think we should have covered that I didn't ask or you think it's valuable for the listeners for us to uh, for us to touch on? I think we covered most of it. I think maybe one thing I would say is that there probably is an in-depth way in a, in a lighter version. I think, you know, what we wanted to do to position ourselves really credibly in the AI space was to do this real in-depth survey, this in-depth report that really talks about the state of AI in New Zealand and, and where we can measure our AI maturity in comparison to our global counterparts. There probably is, though, if, if what you were wanting to do was maybe not that intense, there's probably a lighter, you know, a light version of this type of thing where maybe it's it's less questions, it's maybe more tightly targeted, that type of thing. If you don't have, you know, the budget or, or six months time to do something, there, there potentially is a way to do it, to do it a bit smaller. Got it. Got it. No, that uh, that makes sense. And and uh, I think I think a lot of people will be thinking about, all right, how much effort am I going to put into uh, a, a piece like this? So that's a, that's a great point. Okay, let's get into the rapid fire questions. The first thing I want to ask is, what is one resource, a book, a blog, a podcast, a talk, whatever it is, that fundamentally has changed the way you work or live? There is an ebook that I read that I that really gelled with me and that I that I loved. I don't necessarily think it probably fundamentally changed my life, um, but in 2018, um, Peter Field, who is obviously well known, regarded well regarded marketer, wrote a book specifically for New Zealanders. So um, it was a it was a short ebook. It wasn't long. I think you can read it in like one or two sittings. It was it was pretty short, but really punchy. And from memory, it's got like a really weird name. I think it's called something like "Why Aren't We Doing This" or something something like that. But um, it's all about building long long term brand building for driving profitability. And I think sometimes. In the B2B space, or in sometimes in the B2C space, we can be so distracted with short-term promotions or got to hit this quarterly target or, or whatever, and, and we obviously can't get away from targets. That's um, part of our life as marketers. But this idea of investing in your brand over the long term 
to build greater brand equity, build uh, better profitability for the business, better pricing and margins, all that sort of stuff. It was it was really interesting and it was evidence-based. So it wasn't just theory or opinions. It was based on real-world marketing effectiveness. And for New Zealanders, it um, is based on case studies of, of business, businesses that we all know and love in New Zealand. Uh, Pack and Save is one that comes, that comes to mind and how effective they are with their brand building. So, yeah, not potentially life-changing, but it just really gelled with, with my philosophy, I guess. That's awesome. That's awesome. No, thank you very much for that. Question number two, Nikki, is if you could give only one advice to B2B marketers, what would it be? This one's probably, yeah, for, for market, B2B marketers, it's really important to remember that even though it's business to business, we're still marketing to people. It's real people that are making the buy decisions, not kind of just this faceless corporate so your B2B marketing still really needs to appeal to them. There can sometimes be this idea that B2B marketing has to be much more functional and we can't apply the same emotional marketing tactics that you might find in the B2C space. So I don't think that's true. I think, you know, we need to remember there's a real person engaging with your marketing and people are fundamentally driven by their emotions. So it's okay to bring that through into your B2B marketing. Talk to them like they're normal, real people because they are. I love that. I love that. That's such a great point. Third question, what are some of the influencers that you follow in the marketing space? This is probably a really common answer that you get, but I still really love Mark Ritson. His articles are absolutely on the money every time. Do you, do you know of Mark, Mark Ritson? Absolutely. Yeah, he's, his, his content is absolute gold. It's amazing. So the way he speaks and writes is really engaging and not just because he swears a lot, um, but because he's a straight shooter. He doesn't try and sound all fancy. He just tells it like it is. But aside from that, he's actually an incredibly smart guy that understands a lot about marketing fundamentals. And yeah, I just, I look forward to his, um, his articles that come out. I read them right away. I, I love them. Awesome. Last question, Nikki. Last question is what is something that excites you about B2B today? I'm not sure if this excites me or terrifies me, but um, I'm kind of interested in how this new web 3.0 concept is going to change the way we do marketing in the future. I mean, the fundamentals of marketing obviously aren't going to change, but this idea of the metaverse and things like NFTs and how NFTs might potentially uh, impact how we create marketing content, it's all just, it's all kind of mind boggling, really. And I'm not sure I entirely see where it's all going, but I get the sense that it will represent some sort of shift. And um, it might not be right away, but I think as marketers, we probably need to start getting our heads around it. Yeah, that is definitely a very hot topic. Web three, I think, is is gonna a lot of people talking about it as if as as if it's the or it's similar to the introduction of internet. And uh, I don't think anyone anyone was able to see what internet brought about with uh, with the changes that it introduced. And I don't think anyone can can do that with uh, with Web three. But um, but yeah, that's uh, that's definitely an area that I'm watching closely as well. But um, look. 
This has been an amazing conversation, Nikki. I think we, you know, you shared a lot of amazing insights, and a lot of the uh, listeners would would benefit from this. So I uh, just wanted to say thank you for uh, for coming on the podcast. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for for having me here, and and thank you for giving consideration to us Kiwis across the ditch and and adding us into your uh, podcast roster. Absolute pleasure. It's always amazing to have uh, people from New Zealand come on come on the podcast. So thanks again. Amazing. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving us that five star rating on Apple Podcasts and sharing the pod with a friend. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please make sure to join the community Slack channel at growthcolony.org forward slash Slack. Growthcolony.org forward slash Slack. Thanks again for all the support. We're looking forward to seeing you again in the next one.